Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan and Phil Goldfeder, though not here, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com. And as a guest host of this morning, I'd like to welcome Jeff Webb, the uh, President and CEO of Capital Consulting, a full-service lobbying and government affairs firm specializing in New York and the environs. Uh, Jeff, welcome back to Spin Class. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. I really appreciate being able to fill Phil's spot. Phil, Phil, exactly. Uh, that's that's going to be a new that's going to be a new thing, given uh, Phil being on the road or on assignment, as we like to call it, on a regular basis. But uh, you know, I thought about it, Jeff, and I said, really, right now, it calls for a little bit of understanding of the Democrats. And clearly, I have very little understanding of the Republicans right now. So how am I going to suppose to understand what's going on with Democrats? Uh, we are almost at the end of election. Everybody thinks that elections finish on election day, but no, no. This week we had a special election in Mississippi, and the Republican prevailed, uh, although they sweated it out. It seems that uh, so now we stand at fifty three forty seven in the Senate, and it looks like Democrats will pick up. I don't know, forty seats in the house, something like that in the House. It's uh it's gonna be a nice yeah, nice looking right. majority for them. Absolutely. Despite the fact that the president kind of declared victory on election night, um, it looks that it was a pretty sizable gain for Democrats and now they are ascendant, uh, taking over the soon to be taking over the House. They had their leadership elections yesterday, Jeff. So what what are we learning from the new state of play, the new balance of power uh, that exists? on the side are we going to see a far a big progressive push or we're going to see a little bit uh, more of a, a moderate stance so my prediction uh despite the uh, despite the really the ascension of these elected officials who are very very far liberal very much on the on the left i think that there's going to be a more moderate stance taken during the over the next two years uh, than people initially thought or people thought because I think the mistakes have been made in the past when one party or when the Democrats were to take over, they'd go very far left, put up all these different um, motions, try to impeach Trump, the thought would be, and and that would just really embolden the Republicans to come out uh, two years from now. So I think they're going to try to be more moderate to show that even though they took over the House, they can act in a very moderate, hopefully somewhat bipartisan fashion, and uh, we can have some level of civility. So a lot of Democrats got elected. It's kind of a diverse caucus. As you mentioned, there's some far-left people, some from New York, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez being the celebrity, but there's also Rashida Tlaib from a first Palestinian-American um, from Michigan, and there's um, also from uh, uh, Minnesota, Somali-American, forget the name, but there's also, and, and from Massachusetts, a bunch of progressive insurgents, if you will, have, have been elected uh, on in the, in the middle, you've had quite a few who have said they wouldn't vote for Pelosi for Speaker, although it seems that Nancy Pelosi is coming out of the Democratic conference with a lot of support, although she might not have enough to win the Speakership. So maybe explain what's going on over there. I think right now we're at, she has to flip 12 more seats. Is that the number to uh, to officially win the Speakership? Uh, but a lot of the, the more moderates ran on the position that Democrats ran the position that if they are elected— they will not vote for Nancy Pelosi, and that's because they didn't agree with her policies and because the other side, their opponent in the election, the Republican, was saying that they're a puppet for Pelosi. So someone like a good friend of both of ours, Anthony Brindisi from Utica, who is an assemblyman who beat Claudia Tenney by a very small margin. Yeah, Republican so, district. Actually, she just conceded yesterday. Yes. 
uh, he said from the beginning he's not going to vote for Nancy Pelosi for speaker. And I'm pretty sure he's going to hold to that because his district voted for him based on that and some several other factors. Kathleen Rice in our district right over here, she was always leading the opposition. I don't think she gives a vote to Nancy Pelosi as speaker as well, although the rules say that they have to. So I guess they're going to vote present. Or the Democratic rules. The, the Let's Demo- just right. clarify, yes. right? Democratic so Democratic rules. caucus mm-hmm. rules say that whoever the caucus picks, all the Democrats who are part of the caucus, which presumably is everybody, they must vote for that nominee for speaker. Right? right? I mean, the way, just to explain to the audience the way the speakership works, it's actually the speaker of the House. You're not the speaker of the party. So you actually have to win a majority of the House members in order to be speaker. Right. Presumably, you could have a coalition where a... Some Republicans could come over and vote for an insurgent Democrat candidate, or vice versa, and elect somebody yes. else. And I believe, President, but that's unlikely to happen. Yeah. Well, President Trump told you know he made the statement that if Nancy Pelosi does not have enough votes on the Democratic side, he will make sure he whips the votes on the Republican side. Yeah, I'm not sure like exactly how that's going to happen. <laughs> I, I'd actually like to see that. That would be pretty interesting. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that uh, you know Nancy will have enough votes uh, to to become Speaker. So. The big contested race, the top three leadership positions in the House were uncontested, uh, or there was, you know, despite the fact that people like Anthony Berdisi, you mentioned, and others, they didn't actually have a candidate to vote for. They may not have voted. They might have voted no on Pelosi, but there was nobody else that they did, in fact, vote for. Um, Steny Hoyer of Maryland and James Clyburn of South Carolina are the leadership team, a quite elderly leadership team, not any ageism or anything, but there was a contested race uh, which pitted New York's own Hakeem Jeffries uh, from Brooklyn uh, against Barbara Lee of California, and this was actually seen as a moderate versus left race. It was very, very close. So were you following that race at all? I was, and I'm very, very happy that New York emerged victorious, especially... That was for caucus chair. I think that's the number four position. Exactly, for caucus chair, which is the same position that uh, Joe Crowley occupied before he lost to uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. So it's great that New York retained that position. And you know, I'm sure even as a Republican, Michael, you can agree that Hakeem Jeffries is a real mensch, and he's been a uh, statesman and a, a tremendous advocate for the Jewish community, coming up from the New York State Assembly as well. Uh, and I am I am overjoyed that he has that leadership position. You know, it's funny that we have to preface the idea that, and, and not to you, but in general, that our politics have become is like even you as a Republican <laughs> can agree, right? I I actually think that there are many of different parties who are great Americans. So that doesn't. Being of a different party doesn't disqualify them as great Americans, but I understand the spirit in which you said it. You're absolutely it, right, and I and I and and I accept it. It's just it's unfortunate that that's the way it is. But let's just talk about the progressive, uh, moderate type of thing. You know, Hakeem Jeffries, even though being from Brooklyn, even though probably looking, you know, possibly having a more progressive constituency, was viewed as the moderate candidate. Right. A lot of the progressives, the far left people in this, they were supporting Barbara Lee. In fact. Right. Uh, supposedly, uh, I don't know if it was on the record or not, but from what I heard, she gave a speech that was pretty, I would say, sour grapes after she lost, saying this was about sexism, that she didn't win because she was a woman and she was a woman of color, etc. And, you know, she lost to a man of color. It's kind of this identity politics. Is that ever going to end? I don't know. I, I really hope it does, because what you know what contributes to to me saying even you as a republican that that just this is the environment that we're now where you know it's unfortunate that identity politics is playing such a role instead of really focusing on policies and positions 
So New York is headed for some major league power positions. In addition to Hakeem Jeffries, you have Jerry Nadler heading the Judiciary Committee and Nita Lowy from Westchester and Rockland heading the very, very, very important Appropriations Committee. So what does that mean to what does that mean to New York? What does it mean to Democrats? What does it mean to like things like the Gateway Tunnel? I mean, what what do we see like what what do we see happening here? And what does that mean for President Trump also being a New Yorker? I guess right. oh. it too, too. <laughs> um, but also being a New Yorker is is does that you know what does that do? Where, where, do, where do we see things going? Is this something that they can work with the president, work with the administration? Uh, New York's going to get more, or we're just going to see kind of more of the same. Listen, it's who's to say? What are you advising your clients, Jeff? <laughs> let's let's. Why don't we start with that? Well, this is this is definitely a this is definitely a a good a, a good victory and a great result for lobbyists in New York State who have to deal on the federal level because uh, I think Nita will be very helpful to New York. Uh, Jerry Nadler, uh, although he is is a mixed perception of him in the Jewish community, I think he's going to be fantastic for New York as well. Uh, and um, the hope is that New York will definitely get more uh, in the grand scheme of things, but. I'm not sure. I, I don't know how they're going to work with the president. It depends on the positioning, and uh, you know who, who knows. It's up in the air. What do you think, Michael? Very non-committal. <laughs> I am Jeff. You're here to talk about yeah. Democrats. I can't. Uh, <laughs> what am I supposed to say? I was supposed to tell you yeah. that the. I think you'll see a lot of the same. Unfortunately, I mean, I think the 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 president seems to run in a perpetual campaign mode as opposed to governing mode. And I think, you know, he never stops tweeting, he never stops attacking, right. which has served him well politically, but it doesn't necessarily serve the government well. And, you know, he's just right now just seems to be totally obsessed with the Mueller investigation. So right. we'll have to see. I mean, Jerry, now there's going to potentially pay a big, big part in that. You mentioned impeachment beforehand, which is certainly a possibility. And we'll see. You know, yesterday we had discussions of Manafort being pardoned. I mean, I think that that's. Even from a from Republican perspective, I think doing that kind of begs yeah, impeachment. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, although, I, I will say, it doesn't... For those out there, and I'm sure there are not a, listen, a lot of listeners out there uh, to this show and to this network who are begging for impeachment, but there are a lot of people out there, and Jeff, I'm sure you, you hear them in many circles, I who do. are begging for impeachment. Impeachment, House impeaching the president, which is sure... Never to be convicted by the Senate. Oh, sixty-seven votes. Be sure never to be. So, what is the point? I mean, it's like when the Republicans impeach President Clinton. I mean, that was just a disaster for the yes. government. And you know, well, well I agree I, with you. I, yeah. I agree. I think there's nothing. There's absolutely nothing to be gained in impeaching the president. It, there's nothing to be gained. It will paint the Democrats in a very, very bad light, and it, it's not productive or constructive. And I think that that's really the thought. In D.C., I, I don't, I cannot, I can't see them going ahead with impeachment proceedings. Well, we'll have to see. We don't know what's happening. We don't know what's happening with Mueller. It's like a whole thing. Right. Let's just well, leave. Yeah. We'll, we'll we'll have to, you know, to kind of continued. Yeah, we'll have to kind of have to leave, leave that aside for a second. Um, just from your perspective for a second, what does it mean to have these New Yorkers or, or these um, uh, some of these the Democrats who have been in the wilderness and in, in the House for? quite a few years at this point um what does that have mean to have them leading committees 
uh, of this of this type of thing. Do they just are they just able to get stuff done, um, even though it's divided government, or it's it's going to be just the same type of struggles? Ultimately, you know what it comes down to is I think there'll be the same gridlock that there is that there has been, even though there was a, you know, there was a Republican power, you know, in, in every level, but in every branch. But I think that uh, we'll have gridlock because. They will definitely come to the table with a lot of ideas that will be new ideas, but ideas that they've had for many, many years that they've been sitting on, that they've been pushing for, they're going to try to push through now, perhaps, uh, and it will likely be blocked in the Senate. So I can't see anything going anywhere. I think we're in for two years of gridlock. Wow. Okay, this is Spin Class here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Michael Fragan with uh, guest Jeff Lebb, a Democratic political strategist and lobbyist, Capital Consulting. Uh, Jeff, you primarily focus on New York, uh, New York City, Albany, and it's no—I mean, it's no secret that the Democratic Party. I mean, we have one-party rule here in in New York, and it's not just—it's uh, not just by a little bit. It's actually quick complete total domination right now yeah. of the Democratic Party here in New York. Uh, what what does that mean from your perspective? What does that mean from governing? The last time there was one party rule, 2009-2010, uh, it was looked at as a unmitigated disaster. Awful. I think by both... Okay, awful. <laughs> that was an awful uh, disaster. <laughs> so, so a lot of questions in there. What is, you know, first of all, uh, what lessons or have the Democrats learned lessons from the last time around? Uh, will they be able to do better? For the next uh, for the next two years, so there are there are um, well, I'm sure just for your audience to be aware, there are 63 seats in the New York State Senate. Uh, up until the November elections, it was a split, 31-31, and Simklefelder, who's a Democrat, was caucusing with the Republicans, which gave them a one seat lead. So now the the there are 15 new incoming senators. There are 15 seats. Which, if you think about it, that is huge number, enormous, right? That yeah. is one in five. It's 25% of the House is, is new, brand new, never been there before. And there are, and now the new tally is instead of 31 31 or 32 31, you have 40 Democrats and uh, 23, 23 Republicans. Republicans, right? So it sort of is looked at as a mandate. And what's going to happen, at least I predict is going to happen, is that a lot of the legislation that has been constantly, consistently blocked by the Republican Senate is now going to come for the for, to the forefront. And it's actually going to put the governor in a position where he has to decide which legislation he wants to put through and which legislation he wants to veto. Uh, so we have some interesting bills that uh, I'm sure your audience is very familiar with. Uh, yeah, well, we should. I mean, we should definitely go through them because I think that there are some some of them have been very hot button yes. uh, issues. And I mean, one you know, I think we should just talk about the New York State Assembly is an impenetrable majority. Yeah. Um, Democrats control more than a hundred seats, um, and obviously the governor is a Democrat as well. But not all Democrats are the same. They're not. And what the Assembly had the luxury of doing. Uh, for many, many years, uh, they were able to pass one-house bills, uh, which meant that the Assembly passed bills, sort of statement bills, which uh, espoused their principles and what they would like, their objectives, uh, knowing full well that the Senate would not pass those bills. Now, those same bills that the Assembly has, when they get, make their way to the Senate, the Senate really has to deliberate and figure out if they're going to pass those bills, and if not, how they're going to get along with their Democratic colleagues in the Assembly. So you have, and even within the caucus, so just to talk, tease out the issues within amongst the Democrats uh, in the state Senate, you have a number of 
progressives who uh, who unseated uh, IDC members, the yes. Independent Democratic Caucus members, uh, mostly from urban areas of New York City. And then you have a number of suburban Democrats who defeated Republicans in the general election, uh, who probably last time around, you know, as I said, 2009, 2010, uh, you had two Democratic state senators from Long Island, uh, from suburban districts. And when the when New York state government went and went far left and imposed uh, billions of dollars in new taxes, they were swept out in 2010 um, by, by Republicans. Right. So you got to protect that, not just on Long Island, where you have six yes. now Democrats. Uh, you also have some Democrats in the Hudson Valley right. who are definitely going to be a more conservative, small C conservative type of uh Looking so, you know, how do you balance all those interests? How do you balance some of that inclination, maybe single payer health care, um, and some of these other anti charter schools? Um, you know that some of that, some of that legislation, or you know the push for taxes. Uh, there's always been this strong progressive push for fair share taxation. I still don't know what that means, but we'll leave that aside. How, how do how do they balance that? That seems like a very tough job for the leadership. It does. I think they have to adapt sort of the same mentality uh, that Congress, the Democratic uh, Congress has to, House has to uh, take up, which is all in moderation. Uh, again, the Democrats are hoping that they maintain power for the next two years and they get to redistrict the seats, which would sort of guarantee power in the Democrats and the state Senate. And I think it would be a mistake to come out roaring right now and try to pass some pretty controversial pieces of legislation. Uh, I think the the move is to take a more moderate view. And Andrew Stewart Cousins, who is the new majority leader and the first uh, African-American woman to, the first woman to become majority leader and the first African-American woman, obviously, to become majority leader, uh, she's been there for a while. She's been there uh, before when uh, the the Democrats were in control 10 years ago. Uh, and she's learned a lot from those mistakes. And I think she's going to take a little bit more of a moderate view. You have a lot of veteran senators who have been in the Democratic circle for a while who are there. There's there's no lack of institutional knowledge. Uh, and, you know, the the left candidates, the candidates from the left side who are who've coming in, you know, the Democratic socialist Julia Salazar, who actually I've had conversations with, who is a wonderful person, as far as many other new Democrats, they come in with ideas. I think those ideas will be heard. Uh, but I think a tone of moderation will rule the day. This is Spin Class here on the Malcolm Siegel Network. Michael Fragan sitting with Democratic strategist and lobbyist Jeff Lebb and Jeff, let's talk specifically about Jewish issues. Uh, we can start from the top, kind of this, I think the tale, as you said, there's kind of two Jewish votes when you alluded to Jerry Nadler, right? So Jerry Nadler has one of the most Jewish districts in the whole country, but he has actually some of the most liberal Jews and some of the most conservative Jews, yes. uh, at least voting-wise. And, you know, you see a huge uh, dichotomy between uh, who's voting for him, uh, uh, Nadler. Now there seem to certainly be more... The progressive, there are more progressive votes in that district than there are uh, votes in the Orthodox precincts of Borough Park and Midwood. But you see that a lot of Jews are still voting Republican, and you see that Republican that a lot of people in the Jewish community still supported state Senate uh, in New York Republicans. They supported congressional Republicans. And now that the balance of power has shifted, where does that leave the Jewish community? And we can get to some specific issues afterward. That's 
that's a good question. You know, we've had private conversations as well as we, you know, we talk often. Um, I personally think that it's a very big mistake for the Jewish community to pick on one issue, which is essentially what happens most of the time, and to vote on that one issue, which normally that issue is Israel, and that normally it goes Republican. Uh, I can understand more the, from the federal side doing that with Jerry Nadler. I know there's a lot of opposition to his vote in Iran uh, on the Iran deal, which really brought out a lot of anger in the Jewish community. But I think Jerry has been a consistent friend of the Jewish community, and a lot of people you know, forsake that. And in the state Senate, I think it's absolutely ridiculous to, to take positions, want single-issue positions, and to transform them to your votes. And where we live right now in Long Island, Todd Kaminsky, who was just elected to the state Senate again— you could not have a bigger friend. Quite handily. Very much so. You can't have a bigger friend to the Jewish community, to the Jews, than Todd Kaminsky. And I can say that, and I would say that if I wasn't a lobbyist, if I, was a, if I wasn't a constituent, he's been incredible, and he's been devoted, and he, he is very supportive of the Jewish community. But sometimes Jews don't see that. And if their messaging is to vote Republican all the way, they vote Republican without any sort of consideration as to who they're voting for. Uh you know, it's forgetting about identity politics. This is just partisan politics, and it's unfortunate that uh, many people don't understand that there are nuances to voting for local elected officials, and uh, they just, you know, eat up whatever messages are being given to them. Well, it's not as if the Republicans have not been friendlier to non-public school issues or in in Albany than I mean, you might dispute that. I'm giving oh, you no. my, I'm uh, going to give you my opinion. Sure. Uh, so if that's if that's if they've been friendlier to yeshiva education and been more supportive for, uh, to yeshiva education, does that not um, you know the Democrats now have an opportunity to do that? Right. W- will they do that? I don't know. It's a, it's kind of unclear. The Democrats have always been looked at as being closer to the teachers' union and closer to um, is that is that an incorrect perception? It's not inc- it's not an incorrect perception that the Democrats are closer to the teachers' union than the Republicans are. But I do believe that there is no contradiction with having a relationship with the teachers union and having a relationship with non-public schools. So you think this Democratic majority in the state Senate could benefit the? Absolutely. Absolutely. I am, I, I am very certain. Well, I should say that could benefit, will benefit. I, mean, that's... I, I, am, I am relatively certain, I'm very certain, that the Democrats in the state Senate will work to help out the non-public school community. Okay. Anything specific you'd like to share? I mean, the the big issues that we're working on STEM funding, which okay. has been you know New York was the first uh, the first state in the country uh, to provide funding for STEM, which is uh, science, technology, engineering, and math uh, in in religious faith based schools. They allowed uh, they allowed schools that provide those courses, which are hopefully all schools, to uh, submit for reimbursement for. Uh, for the cost of the teachers who provide those the instruction, those topics, first time that ever happened. Uh, I can't. I don't see the Democrats stopping that. In fact, I see them adding to the funding that was received. Uh, uh, issues like cap and mandate services, and these are sort of in the weeds types of issues. But issues that give. Uh, but that's real money, right? Real money, it, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars to, to schools, depending on the amount of children that they have enrolled. And I see the, the Senate Democrats continuing that as well. So I don't see anything changing negatively for the amount of funding that has been uh, allocated to non-public schools and faith-based schools. So I think you highlight, I, I just want to explain the STEM issue and why it's actually so consequential, is that it's long been this 
bridge too far for anybody to consider reimbursing teachers or reimbursing schools for teacher salaries for actual instruction right we've always given money states always give money kind of around textbooks transportation exactly. attendance you know services uh nurses services security services but actual instruction has always been kind of untouchable we've never been able we've never been able to do that because there's always been this church state divide right. so new york state actually devised this program to allow for stem Instruction. This was something that was championed by the uh, state Senate Republicans, together with Governor Cuomo, um, and yeah, the New York State Assembly, which was Democrat. So it was a bipartisan sure. uh, push, and it's been. But you know, it's kind of as you said, it's the first in the nation to do that. It's it's very significant. It's a, that's a very big thing. Um, but there are a lot of yeshivas out there, as you kind of allude to. We'll get into that because I think this is going to be a big issue. Was you know, we 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 wind up the show. There are a lot of Yeshivas out there that are not providing STEM education, uh, right. or at least an extensive amount of STEM education, uh, because right now there is this, you know, pressing now investigation or pressing move towards uh, those schools that don't provide or not or are not providing uh, general studies instruction. And there's now new guidelines issued by the uh, state education department, and will it seems that there'll be a big push now amongst progressives to kind of uh, investigate yeshivas uh maybe it's not just coming from progressives i don't know exactly you know where where this big push is but it seems like it's coming and a lot of people in the orthodox community feel threatened by it that's correct uh for for the most part these investigations will target the uh very you know the ultra orthodox the hasidic factions of the firm community uh i personally if i sent my children to a school that didn't provide that education, I would be very upset and want them to do that. And the hope is that most schools do provide that education. And for those who don't, I guess they'll have an opportunity. I believe in the new guidelines give a two-year fixed uh, cure period. So if they are found not to provide that education, they can work with the state to try to implement that over the next two years. So Simcha Felder, who had kind of been looked at as the protector of of the yeshivas and had been pushing, had been one pushing for yeshivas to self-accredit themselves. And they have been pushing, you know, they've been pushing to do that. Um, is that at off the table now, now that Simcha Felder is kind of no longer the linchpin of any uh, governing coalition? He's kind of, as you said, one of just 40 Democrats. You know, it remains to be seen. Uh, Simcha has a very loud voice. He's always had a very loud voice. He uh, makes himself heard. Uh, and, uh, you know, who knows? Right now, I think the jury still has to, if he's going to be caucusing with the Republicans and the Democrats right now, right? Because he was caucusing with the Republicans when we last left him currently, I believe. Right. Uh, and I, last and I, I think heard, he got more votes on the Republican and conservative line together than he did on the Democratic, Democratic line. Right. So who knows? And the uh, Democrats, of course, tried to throw him out of the party, but we'll leave that for a different time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that, is, that is what happened. Uh, you know, who knows? I think that Simcha is an incredible advocate for the Jewish community, uh, but fortunately there are many advocates for the Jewish community, um, many of whom... Uh, have great relationships with the Democrats, and I'm going to use this second to plug OU Teach NYS uh, because they are a client. I did used to work there, full disclaimer, but they have incredible bipartisan relationships with the Democrats, and uh, hopefully we can make sure that uh, the rights of the yeshivas and non-public school community is uh, protected. Is the OU representing the schools that don't... 
Our, no. I don't okay. believe the OU is representing those schools. The OU is representing the concept of providing better education to non-public schools. Okay. Child Victims Act, as we close. Uh, okay. Where of that, I guess there's this big push Child Victims Act allows uh, those that were abused, either in, in school, a look-back period of to they could be 60 70 years old they can still sue the institution which right. they get for abuse that happened potentially i'm not belittling it i'm giving you oh, the extreme no, I, example sure. here which would where, bankrupt the which would potentially would bankrupt yeah. correct many institutions right so i the, the democrats have promised to pass that i i definitely see something passing i i see some sort of child victims act passing uh again i think it may be more uh it may be moderated a bit because I believe the governor is also the governor understands the ramifications to institutions. And uh, I think we may see a final product that isn't exactly what the Democrats want, but is something that can allow victims of abuse to have their voices heard. OK, Jeff Leb, uh, expert on New York state politics, uh, lobbyist, government relations from uh, expert on from Capital Consulting. Jeff, thank you so much for your insight here on Spin Class. And that's it for this week here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs.